0: Welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. I am Michael Bradley, this is episode number 27, and this episode we'll be looking at the 8th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip, a giant-sized story that is one of Jerry Siegel's most ambitious to date. Before we get into that, though, I've got just a couple emails to go through. Both of these came in response to episode number 22, which was the second of our fifth week installments. In that episode, I talked about The Incident, a story from Action Comics number 900, and my thoughts on a couple of issues that that story raised. The first email comes from Mark Camphausen, and sorry Mark if I mispronounced your last name there, but Mark wrote, Hi Mike, thanks for the great podcast as always. I had just a few thoughts on episode 22. I agree with what you said about Superman renouncing his U.S. citizenship. To my knowledge, he's not a citizen. I would imagine, legally, Superman doesn't exist. He doesn't pay taxes, have a social security number, or anything. So that's kind of a hazy issue. As far as the truth, justice, and the American way issue, when you said that the American way does not represent any particular U.S. policy, I agree. Other folks around the world... Superman may be trying to help might not interpret the concept of the American Way the same way you or I do. I think that is the issue that concerns Superman. People outside the US see Superman as an arm of the US. There are so many negative feelings toward the US around the world. Those feelings impact Superman's ability to follow his calling as a protector. How can you protect people who believe you're part of the problem? I don't believe Superman is talking about changing his values He's just thinking about changing the way he describes himself and what he represents. I would imagine that if people around the globe think of Superman as fighting for human rights, dignity, and equality, rather than the American way, he may be more globally accepted. Whenever you attach the word American, or any other country's name for that matter, it automatically comes with a whole bunch of baggage. At any rate, I don't think the storyline will ever be followed up on. Thanks again for the great podcast. Mark. And thanks for the letter, Mark. I don't think it will ever be followed up on either, at least not directly, especially with the uh, Not A Reboot coming in September. And I rather hope it won't be followed up on thematically because it's just not a Superman I'm interested in reading particularly. But I guess we'll see. The second letter comes from Frank Adiego. And sorry to you too, Frank, if I mispronounced your name as well. But Frank wrote, Michael, I haven't listened to the show in a while, but chanced upon it tonight. Let me just say that I am in complete agreement with you. How it is that some people seem to think that truth, justice, and the American way means, oh, I can never help or even respect anyone if they're not American, is beyond me. Seriously, every time you get something like this, a bunch of people defend it simply for the sake of bashing America, or bash America simply to defend those works. Oh, you say you stand for equality, but then you guys had slaves or, you know, you're not the only democracy in the world, and so forth. I'm glad the issue seems to have disappeared, but it still bothered me. Sincerely, Frank. Thanks for the email, Frank. You know, it surprises me that both emails I got were in agreement with me. I was actually bracing for some dissenting opinions, and I figured if I got anything, it would be people telling me, you know, how wrong I was. So I was glad to hear that there's people out there that feel the same way I do, though. But... If you disagree with what I say on the podcast, or, you know, not just about the American Way issue, but anything, you know, throughout the course of the stories, feel free to write in. Because, you know, I'm doing this to to share my love of the character and to kind of explore through his history, but I also want to hear how other people view the character and their opinions on the stories and the topics that are raised. So don't be hesitant to, to send me an email if you disagree or if you agree.
1: My name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast.
2: Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic.
1: Like what?
2: Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor.
1: And I am Michael Bailey.
2: From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman
1: Wait, wait, wait,
2: wait, wait, wait. I'm
1: just not feeling this.
2: I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital.
1: Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm
2: Jeffrey Taylor.
1: And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986
2: and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world and when these comics were published, and what else was going on in the DC Universe.
1: The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at
2: www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
1: So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, the Marriage, and Beyond.
2: And write into the show at From Crisis to Crisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air. Eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing.
1: Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention.
0: So, the eighth storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip... This was a story that was a whopping 96 strips long. That's nearly three times the length of any story that we've looked at on the show thus far, and definitely among the longest of the stories in this early period. It was comprised of strips numbers 163 to 258 and ran for more than three and a half months from July 24th, 1939 to November 11, 1939. That puts it starting about a week before the likely release of Action Comics number 16, which was the first book Charlie Niemeyer and I looked at in episode 25, and ending about a week and a half after the likely release of Action Comics number 19, which we'll get looked at um, next episode. So readers at the time got four issues of Action Comics plus an issue of Superman while this story was running. As well, the Sunday version of the newspaper strip started at the tail end of the story on November 5th, 1939. The daily and Sunday versions of the strip ran separate storylines, so we'll talk more about the Sunday version when we cover the first storyline from that in a few episodes. It's also important to note, I think, that that puts this story running right at the dawn of World War II, with Germany's invasion of Poland happening on September 1st, 1939. The war doesn't have much of anything to do with this story, as obviously it would have been written and mostly drawn before the invasion. But it is significant to mention, not only because it's a major historical event, but because we are going to start seeing references to the war and war-influenced tales creep into both the newspaper strips and the comic books after this, starting actually with the next storyline from the dailies, which... We'll probably be looking at in episode 29. This story though was as always written by Jerry Siegel. Art wise, we've got many hands on deck this time, with Joe Shuster, Dennis Neville, Paul Cassidy, and possibly another artist or two all chipping in. And the fact that there were at least three artists contributing could explain the problems with the art in this storyline. And as I've mentioned before, Many people chipping in to get the art done on a story is something that will happen more and more as we go on. And that's one of the things that makes it so difficult, sometimes, to distinguish who did what on which strip. Though eventually it does level out again. Our story has been called Royal Death Plot, and it begins with Lois Lane asking Clark Kent over to her place for dinner. You heard me right. Lois Lane, the woman whom we have seen belittle and scream at the despicable and worthless Clark Kent nearly every time she's been in a story, has invited the man she called the spineless worm over for dinner. Clark, of course, is overjoyed, or at least a glutton for punishment, and accepts her invitation. Arriving at her apartment later that evening, Lois tells Clark to make himself comfortable while she heads to the kitchen to finish dinner. As Clark is listening to the radio, the music is interrupted by a news bulletin. It seems King Boru of Rangoria and his daughter, the Princess Tanya, were traveling to the States via their royal yacht called the Milan. The ship and its convoy are being trailed by a submarine of unknown origin and violence is feared. Clark quickly goes into action with a leap out the window, and just seconds later Lois enters the room, very surprised to find Clark gone. Using his bare hands, Clark climbs to the roof of the building and removes his suit to reveal the costumed form of Superman. He says to himself that Lois will be upset when she finds him gone, but there are more important things to deal with. Then with a mighty leap, he jumps off the roof to the street below and takes off in a run. Superman says that he has a pretty good idea of where the Milan is... And how that is, I don't know. But after running to the dock, he dives into the water and begins swimming out to sea, saying that he should reach the boat in minutes. So apparently Superman can swim as fast as he can run, which to me is really cool. Before I go any further, I want to mention, before he leaps off the roof, we also get a panel that shows Clark, or Superman, folding his clothes and making a comment that he'll pick him up on his next visit. So it's nice to see Siegel dealing with the fact that while Superman is wearing his Union suit under his street clothes now, the street clothes are still a problem when Superman has to go into action and can't go home first. So, aboard the Milan, King Baru asks why the convoys haven't done anything about the trailing subs. And his, I presume it's the captain of the ship, tells him that subs have been warned, and if they don't back off, the Milan is going to fire. Shortly, Superman arrives, just as one of the Milan convoy ships is torpedoed. Apparently, the other convoy ship was torpedoed between panels, because with the destruction of the second ship, persons aboard the Milan say that they are now wide open for a direct attack from the sub. Inside the submarine, a man gives the command to fire, and Superman watches as another torpedo races towards the Milan's hull. Superman goes after the torpedo, slamming into it and knocking it off course, so that it narrowly misses its target. But things get worse as another torpedo is soon launched from the submarine. Superman swims directly at the missile, colliding with it head-on, resulting in a huge explosion and catapulting Superman's body into the air. Aboard the Milan, the king, the princess, and the captain are amazed at what they just witnessed. Actually, the princess seems a little more than amazed, but more on that in a minute. In the water, the sub continues its onslaught, rising from the water and opening fire on the defenseless boat. Explosions from the merciless attack rock the ship, with her passengers thinking they are doomed. As the sub continues its onslaught, Superman, whose impenetrable skin and amazing physical structure allowed him to survive the torpedo's explosion unharmed, boards the ship. An officer aboard the submarine gives the order to continue firing, but is confronted by Superman. The commander and the crewmen attack Superman, but our hero makes quick work of them, tossing them and the cannon off the sub and into the water. Other crewmen on the ship place a frantic call to their superiors. Counterattacked, capture imminent. What are your orders? A monocled man receives the message and gives the command that they are to destroy themselves rather than face the repercussions should their plan be exposed. Aboard the sub, Superman charges at the commander The commander points a gun at Superman and warns him to stay back, but Superman is unafraid. He grabs the commander by the throat, demanding to know why he attacked the Milan. The commander refuses to say, and Superman demands again, No stalling now! Tell me who provoked this attack on the Milan, and why! But the commander still refuses to tell, only saying Superman will never know, because the secret is to die with them right now. He then slams his foot back, stepping on a button, which causes a submarine to explode in a ball of flame. Now, (laughs) one might question the safety of keeping a self-destruct button on the deck of a submarine where it could easily be stepped on, but still, very cool scene. Lots of explosions and action, even if it was subtler than what we've seen. I kind of would have liked to to see Superman and the commander tussle a bit before he stepped on the button, because, as it is, these guys have caught Superman unaware three times, but given that he is Superman, he probably would have made pretty quick work of them anyway. So, in that vague, distant room, the monocled man and a radio operator attempt to contact the sub, but have no luck, which tells them the crew sacrificed themselves for the greater good. Aboard the Milan, the king is relieved that the danger is gone, but Princess Tanya is saddened about the believed death of the brave man who aided them. But little do they know, that brave man is Superman. Underwater, having been caught in the explosion, the now-unconscious Superman is flung through the water and beat about by the waves. As the Milan continues its journey to the States, the king and Tanya marvel over Superman's miraculous feats, and Tanya remarks that she would like to meet him. And this is a bit odd because a few panels ago, they didn't seem to know who Superman was and thought he'd been killed when the submarine exploded. And I guess they still don't know who he is necessarily, but from their short discussion, especially Tanya's, it doesn't seem like they're too worried that he was killed. So that's kind of odd. But anyway, Superman revives in the water and swims to the surface to see the Milan some distance ahead. He takes off swimming, easily overtaking the ship, and climbs aboard, quickly ducking out of sight to keep from being seen by passengers. Coming across the captain's cabin, he eavesdrops as the captain talks with the king. It seems King Baru and his daughter's trip to the States is a diplomatic one. They're trying to strengthen ties of friendship between the U.S. and Rangoria. The captain believes that political enemies of the king attempted to kill them in U.S. territory, in order to cause an international incident and allow them to seize the throne. But while Superman is eavesdropping, he also picks up the sound of footsteps behind him. Superman turns and grabs the person, only to discover that it's the princess. A girl, he says, and a beautiful one at that. The princess is taken aback that Superman would dare touch her. Superman apologizes, but Tanya quickly calls him a cur and angrily slaps him across the face. Superman makes a quick remark about her being a princess, making her feel entitled, and just as I imagine he's about ten seconds from tossing her overboard, Tonya recognizes him as the one who saved the ship from the submarine. He replies, Superman, princess, at your service. And I chuckled when I read that because it just seems really awkward for Superman to be introducing himself as Superman. You know, in this era of stories with the, the more harder-edged Superman. We've seen him address himself as that before, but it's typically been when he's talking to himself or referring to Superman in the, in the third person. It's rare for him to actually introduce himself as that. And you know, we still don't know at this point how Superman got his name or even how the public found out. Way back in Action Comics number 1, as well as the beginning of the Daily Strip, the first time we see Superman being used in dialogue is when the paper's editor asked Clark about the rumors of a really strong guy named Superman. So, is this a moniker that Clark came up to, you know, to call himself? Or was it a term used by people and it just sort of stuck? These are interesting questions, and unfortunately, we don't get any answers to them for a while. So it just always kind of amuses me a little when Superman introduces himself like that. Anyway, Princess Tanya thanks Superman for saving them, saying that the royal house is in his debt, then asks for Superman's forgiveness for acting so hasty. Superman just does the cool hero thing, saying saving people is what he does, then says maybe they'll see each other again before heroically leaping off, leaving Tanya to swoon over the totally awesome hero. Later, Superman lands back at Clark's apartment and immediately puts a call in to the Daily Star, calling in the story. And it's really fun seeing Superman standing in Clark's apartment using the telephone. But meanwhile, in that vague, faraway room, the monocled man and his co-conspirators fume over their failed mission, but say the Milan docks tomorrow, and they shan't miss again. With the story called into the paper, Superman heads back to Lois's, He lands on the roof, changes back to Clark, then shimmies down the side of the building and into the apartment, surprising the heck out of Lois. Who knows how long Clark has been gone at this point? I mean, it would have had to have been a couple hours, I think. We don't have too much to gauge how far out the ship was, other than it says the ship won't dock until the next morning at nine. But that would have to be a minimum of eight hours, since this part of the story happens at night. And... Superman is obviously a lot faster than the ship, but still, he went from Lois's to the ship, saved the ship, got knocked out, snooped about the ship, then came back, phoned in a story, and then went back to Lois's. So it would have had to have been, you know, quite a while. Given that, you know Lois is going to be ticked, and boy is she ever. Clark tries to offer an explanation, but Lois lays into him for running off after begging for a date for months then kicks Clark out the door. And while that's pretty harsh, and I feel bad for Clark, at least here, and for the first time really, Lois is more or less completely justified in her vitriol towards Clark. He did try to explain, and she could have let him, but I can't say I blame her for being upset with him, you know, for just disappearing on her. So after Clark leaves, Lois takes a walk and sees a newsboy on the street corner selling copies of an extra edition of the Daily Star. Curious why they brought out an extra, Lois buys a copy and is shocked to see the front page headline, Submarine Attacking Royal Couple Destroyed at Sea by Superman, written by Clark Kent. Lois is dumbfounded to explain how Clark could have left and got the scoop in such a short amount of time. But seeing in the article that the Milan is to dock the next morning makes plans to be there. The next morning, in that still vague, distant office, the monocled man and his co-conspirators plot on who will be the quote-unquote lucky one to get the task of assassinating the king and princess. And it's funny because they put everyone's name in a hat then draw out one of the slips. So it's nice seeing assassins being so fair.
2: Oh, we take turns. Oh, we take turns. So we'll all have fun. So we'll all have fun. Everyone, everyone, oh, we take turns, so we'll all have fun, and we include everyone, oh, we take turns, so we'll all have fun. That's right, everybody gets (laughs) a turn.
1: Oh, we take turns.
0: As the Milan docks, crowds gather about, a crowd that includes the assassin, government officials, and members of the press, including, naturally, Clark and Lois, the latter of whom coldly blows off Clark's attempt to be friendly. Under heavy guard, the King and Princess deboard the ship. Suddenly, Clark, with his telescopic vision, spots the assassin pull out a grenade. Because he's too far away, he's unable to stop him naturally without revealing his identity as Superman, so Clark grabs a nearby photographer's camera and hurls it at the assassin, knocking the grenade from his hand and into the water below. Seeing the ruckus, the crowd rushes at the would-be killer. The man turns to run, jumping into the water between the pier and the docked Milan, but just as he does, a wave slams the boat into the pier, crushing the would-be assassin to death. Lois is distraught by the grisly demise, but Clark is stoic, simply saying he got what he deserved. Clark is then mobbed Clark is then mobbed by the crowd, all congratulating him on his heroic act of disarming the killer, leaving Lois to wonder how in the world Clark Kent could be a hero. Later, a very disheveled Clark is able to slip away from the crowd and phone in the story to the Daily Star. Clark even makes a comment here about, if that's hero worship, I want none of it, which I really, really liked. Clark getting mobbed by the crowd reminded me of the scene in John Byrne's Man of Steel where he's mobbed by the crowd after saving the space plane, or I guess I should say that that scene reminded me of this one since it came first. But either way... The next morning, Clark arrives at work and receives even more accolades from his co-workers. There's a rather nondescript guy, another uh, another man smoking a pipe, who kind of looks like former Superman editor Mike Carlin. There's not Jimmy Olsen, and Lois, of course, though she's mostly annoyed that Clark is the center of attention. While they're patting Clark on the back, a Rangorian representative shows up at the paper and offers Clark an invitation on behalf of King Boru and Princess Tanya so that they can offer their thanks personally. Later, Clark goes to what I'm guessing is the Rangorian Embassy. It calls it the King's residence later on, but it doesn't make sense that King Boru would have his own house in the United States, so I'm going with that it's the embassy. And he drives there, which makes this, I think, the first time we've seen Clark driving, other than in Action Comics number 10, where he bought that old jalopy with the sole intention of running down the police officer so that he could be arrested. Anyway, Clark tries to enter, but is stopped by the guards until they find out who he is, and then they allow him to enter, offering their forgiveness. Clark is escorted to a huge room, and is later joined by the king and Tanya, who thank him and offer him anything he wants in reward for his bravery. Clark says that he's a reporter, and that an interview will be thanks enough. During the interview, the king tells him they believe the Black Gang, a group of Rangorian terrorists, is responsible for the submarine attack on the Milan. Once the interview is over, the princess asks to speak with Clark off the record, and after pulling him into the next room, she asks who Superman is, not knowing that he's the one who rescued them from the attack. Clark replies, Superman? Er, he's a man possessing super strength who battles injustice and assists the oppressed. Very little is known of him. And again, I find this interesting because... we really haven't seen Clark talking too much about Superman. You know, describing who he is and such. They've kind of dropped the idea, or never really ran with it anyway... that it's Clark's job to cover Superman reports. Of course, in the newspaper continuity... Clark did score the first interview with Superman... which is what landed him his job at the Daily Star. Of course, in the newspaper continuity... Clark did score the first interview with Superman, which is what landed him his first job at the Daily Star. And looking back now, it would have been cool to read that interview to see what kind of information he revealed about himself. J. Michael Straczynski picked up the idea of Clark interviewing himself at the tail end of Superman Earth-1, and they even uh, printed a mock interview that Clark wrote. And I think I prefer the idea of Clark letting Lois get the first Superman interview. I don't necessarily have a problem with Clark reporting on Superman's activities, even if it is a bit gray ethics-wise, but writing up a fake interview with himself with fake quotes seems a lot less ethically gray to me. But anyway, that's really neither here nor there. So Clark asked Tanya why she's asking about Superman, And Tanya replies that she's fallen in love with him, and more than anything else, wants to meet him again, asking Clark to help her find him. Clark agrees, but thinks that it could put him in a tough situation if she were to realize his true identity. It seems he'd be in the same situation with Lois, but we really haven't seen him bringing that up so blatantly before. And it's fun seeing these little bits of Superman being you know, more and more conscious of his dual identity slowly coming into the stories. So Tanya reminds Clark of a special reception being held that night that he is to attend and leaves. In the next room, a butler makes a phone call. Identifying himself as Operator X11, he tells the person on the other end of the line that Clark will be at the reception. Using his superhearing, Clark hears the dialing of the phone and was able to make out the number called from the clicking of the dial. So now Clark is using his superhearing for more than just overhearing conversations. But picking up the fine clicks of a telephone, which is definitely a big boost in that ability. After Clark leaves the building, he calls the operator and gets the name and address that belong to the number, a Dr. Laron, and decides to pay the doctor a visit. He tells the doctor he's been experiencing severe pain in his side, and as the doctor is examining him, Clark's superhearing picks up muffled breathing in the next room. The doctor finishes his examination, finding nothing wrong, of course. And as Clark is getting ready to pay, the doctor pulls out a gun. The doctor tells him not to move, and two more men with guns enter from the next room. Clark asks, you know, what's it all about? And the doctor tells him not to play dumb. They know who he is, and they want to know why he's come there from the king's place. And Clark... Clark just smiles. He doesn't say anything. He just smiles. This annoys the doctor, who then hits Clark with a hard left and said that they have ways of making him talk. A lot of people in these Golden Age comics have ways of making people talk, if you've noticed. Larone's henchman then clamped Clark's hand in a vice, and after giving him one more chance to talk, began turning the handle of the vice, closing it ever tighter on Clark's hand. However, despite the fact that the henchmen are turning it as much as they can, and that the vice itself was slowly starting to bend and retch around Clark's hand, His only reaction is to continue to smile, not saying a word. The doctor encourages his henchmen on, saying that their superior must be told everything Clark knows. And with the information that Lerone isn't the top dog, Clark decides to play along, hoping to learn more. Clark feigns pain, begging them to stop. The doctor says that they will pay him $100,000 if Clark will work for them, and Clark replies he'll do anything they say as long as they let him go. After they release him from the vice, Clark tells how he overheard the butler and came to the doctor's office looking for a story. The doctor then formulates a plan. At the reception that night, Clark is to get the princess to go for a ride, then take her to an agreed-upon location where the thugs will kidnap her and hold her hostage until the king gives in to their demands. After Clark leaves, the doctor calls their superior, the monocled man from earlier in the story, and their fearless leader agrees to their plan but says that they are to bring the princess to him instead so that he can kill her. That evening, as Clark is getting ready for the reception, Lois shows up and invites herself along. Clark, making a return to being a complete idiot, says what a pleasure her company is, but Lois tells him not to get any ideas, the editor wants her to go, and that it's strictly business. When they arrive at the reception, Clark is greeted with many more accolades from the party guests for his heroic actions in stopping the assassin. The princess then grabs him for a dance, but makes it clear that she's only dancing with him to learn more about Superman, and then asks if there's any way she can contact him. Clark says contacting Superman would be very difficult, but possible. As the princess and Clark are dancing, Lois has had plenty of time to return to her old bipolar self and fumes that Clark isn't paying enough attention to her. Not that she's jealous, you understand. She's just envious that someone else is getting the attention of the man she continually rejects. (sighs) Anyway, as the dance ends, Lois confronts Clark, saying he should dance with her. And Clark agrees, but before the next song can begin, he's ushered quickly out the door by the princess. The two go for a drive, and Clark thinks to himself that everything is going to plan and that it's a good thing he decided to pretend to be in league with the terrorists. Then the princess asks Clark to pull over and park. Clark does, and the princess uses the opportunity to start coming on to Clark, saying that despite her feelings for Superman, she's attracted to him as well. She then goes on to remark about the resemblance between Clark and Superman. Clark replies, ''Me? Resemble Superman?'' But the princess's suspicions don't last long, And she dismisses the silly notion, thinking to herself that the two are too dissimilar in personality, which leaves Clark feeling like he dodged a bullet. Well, maybe not a bullet, unless it was a kryptonite bullet, but what's kryptonite, right? Anyway, as this is happening, the Rangorian terrorists roll up in a car. And it's interesting how their prearranged meeting spot was the exact place the princess had Clark stop, isn't it? They force Clark out of the car, popping him in the jaw. Then, while Clark feigns unconsciousness, they grab the princess and drive off. After they leave, Clark gets up, changes to Superman, and chases after the car, easily catching up to it. And again, we have a bird's eye panel very similar to the one from the story we looked at last episode, where it looks like Superman is running in midair, and the narration, again, doesn't really do anything to dispute that. So, as he's leaping, or running, or pseudo-flying, whatever he's doing, Superman uses his super-hearing and x-ray vision to find the situation inside the car, which includes the thugs threatening to put a bullet in the princess's brain if she causes trouble. Superman then speeds ahead of the car, planting himself firmly in the road. The car tries to swerve around him, but Superman grabs the car, ripping open the back end, pulling the princess out. He then picks up the car, shakes out its remaining occupants before smashing the car to pieces. Superman then runs after the crooks, grabbing one and tossing him into the others, leaving them begging for mercy. Another car approaches, and the princess thinks they are saved, but in reality the car is driven by the doctor and his two thugs. The crooks pull out machine guns and open fire on Superman and the princess, but our hero grabs the princess and leaps into the nearby tree. Channeling her inner Lois, the princess uses this opportunity to fawn over the Man of Steel. If you only knew how I'd long to have you hold me like this. But Superman is having none of it, telling her it's no time for romance. He then tells her not to move unless he says it's okay. She's in a tree. Where is she going to go? Regardless, Superman then leaps back out of the tree and starts tossing the cooks around. Some of them rocket at him in a car, intent on running him down, but Superman uproots a tree and tosses it javelin-style right into the engine block of the car. The crooks stare dumbfounded at their newly wrecked ride, and Superman grabs the princess and leaps off into the night, fending off a hail of machine gun fire. As Superman carries the princess through the night, Tanya continues to make advances, much to Superman's chagrin, since he has no time for romantic tomfoolery. When they get back to the princess's place, she tells Superman to wait for her signal, as she has something very important to tell him. Meanwhile, back at the party, people are starting to wonder what happened to Clark and, more importantly, the princess. Just then, though, the princess's assistant comes in, saying the princess has decided to go to bed, leaving Lois to wonder exactly what Clark and Tanya have been up to. Up in her room, Tanya has changed into a slinky nightgown and sprays on some perfume before signaling Superman who is still waiting outside. Seeing the signal, Superman leaps up to the balcony and enters her room. Tanya apologizes for keeping him waiting, and then starts in with the flirty eyes. Superman is a bit dense, though, finally causing Tanya to throw her arms around him and come right out and say that she's crazy about him. Superman replies that he's flattered, and hopes that she doesn't take it personally, but that, quote, "...my life is devoted to battling evil." and there is no place in my scheme of things for romance. Except for Lois, maybe? Anyway, the princess doesn't take too well to Superman's rejection, and grabs a dagger that just happens to be laying on a nightstand, and jams it down on Superman's chest, which only causes the blade to crumple. Tanya realizes what a dummy she was for trying to stab an invulnerable guy, but then Superman just adds to her indignity as he grabs her by the arm, sits down on the bed, turns her over his knee, and proceeds to spank her. Or as Superman puts it, give her what she deserves. And I'm just simply at a loss. But the interaction here is great. As Superman is spanking her, she's yelling, You can't do this to me! A princess of Rangoria! And Superman just replies, But I am. (laughs) And, uh, as Superman leaves, thinking he'd rather fight a dinosaur than mess with the princess again, Tanya watches him go, sighing, I should hate him, but I don't. I love him. <sighs> Once more, I'm simply at a loss. Superman then goes back to the car, switches back to Clark, and goes back to the reception, where he runs into a very unhappy Lois. Clark tries to explain his absence. But Lois says she's not interested in excuses and demands that Clark take her home. The two ride back in stone-cold silence, and despite the fact that Clark is rocking a completely awesome stovepipe top hat, his night ends with Lois slamming the door in his face. The next morning, as Clark is entering work, he's approached by a man saying Dr. Larone wants to see him at once. Lois overhears and sees the two leave and follows them, hoping to horn in on whatever scoop Clark is chasing. When Clark reaches the doctor's office, Larone recounts the events of the night before, Superman saving the princess, and surmises that as long as Superman lives, their plans are threatened. He then reveals that their boss, the monocled man we've seen, has set a trap for Superman at Kenyon Warehouse, and Clark volunteers to help lure him there. Outside the office, Lois has heard the entire conversation and thinks that Clark Kent has turned traitor. The shock of the news causes Lois to drop her purse, alerting Larone and the others. They grab her, and as Lois is laying into Clark about her dislike being well-founded, Clark tells the terrorists that she's a reporter from the paper. Larone aims to shoot Lois, but Clark stops him, saying that since Superman has rescued her in the past... They should use her as bait to lure Superman to the warehouse, a suggestion which Lerone likes, but Lois, naturally, doesn't. Which is surprising, because normally she'd be enthused at any opportunity to see her dream lover. But meanwhile, at King Boru's residence, a servant serves him and Tanya breakfast. Unbeknownst to them, though, the servant has secretly drugged their drinks, As the king and the princess succumb to the poison, the butler and the two men carry them out to a waiting car and speed off. Back at the doctor's office, the crooks force Lois into a waiting car and drive away. Meanwhile, Clark uses the payphone to make good on his promise and calls the Daily Star to report the story of Lois' kidnapping. Then, not wasting any more time, changes to Superman. And a very smiley, barrel-chested Superman, too, might I add. Maybe a little too much, but with a little more definition. So, the crooks force Lois into the warehouse where the king and the princess are already being held. The princess tells Lois not to worry because she's sure Superman will save them. And when he does, says the monocled man entering the room, when he does, I will be delighted to greet him. I have an unpleasant surprise for the man of steel. The king recognizes the man as Cobra and asks how he dare take such action against the king. Cobra hushes the king, saying now he is the one with the power, and telling the king he wants him to sign some papers. Ever optimistic, Tanya says the king will never sign the papers, and that Superman will save them. And it's at this point I really wanted Cobra to turn to Tanya and goad her into saying that line again, just so that he could cut her off and say, Wrong! But that's just me. Also, just an FYI, no explanation is given on what these papers are or what purpose they serve, and they're not referenced again for the rest of the story. Likewise, there's never any explanation about who Cobra is in relation to the king who knew him by name. So don't spend too much time plundering these points, which would you know, seem important to Cobra's motivation if not the overall plot of the story. And there's also no word if Cobra is any relation to Stanislaw Cobra, the injured miner from way back in Action Comics number 3, but I'm going with no. Anyway, Cobra says that he is prepared for Superman, and goes on to detail his plan for dealing with the Man of Steel. He shows Boru and Tanya a room full of giant whirling mirrors, which he plans to use to hypnotize Superman into submission. Tanya continues to cheer for Superman, So, Cobra decides to give her a demonstration of the power of his mighty mirrors and trains them on Lois, causing her to freeze and become subject to Cobra's demands, before once more releasing her. A photoelectric eye signal, as Cobra calls it, alerts him that Superman has landed on the roof. Outside, Superman rips the skylight off the roof and drops down into the building. He makes his way down a series of hallways before busting through the wall and into Cobra's lab in a totally awesome panel that could have been a splash page. You know, if they did splash pages back then in the newspaper strip. But despite Superman's dramatic entrance, Cobra flips the switch, bombarding our hero with an array of dazzling lights reflected off the mirrors. The lights blind Superman, leaving him stunned. As King Baru, Tanya, and Lois watch in abject horror... Cobra speaks, trying to bring Superman under his hypnotic thrall. Hear me, Superman. Your strength is departing. You are growing weaker. Weaker. Summoning all his willpower, Superman wages one of the strangest battles the world has yet seen. Super strength, pitted against the power of Hypnotism Plus. Seeing Superman's fight against the Hypnotism... Cobra redoubles his efforts, increasing the power and saying no man is strong enough to overcome his machine. The machine does manage to halt our hero, but suddenly Superman breaks free of the hypnotism, charges through the crooks right at the mirrors, smashing them with one punch. Unfortunately for the crooks, it is they that will be on the receiving end of those seven years of bad luck, because with the mirrors destroyed, Superman turns his attention to those responsible— grabbing the fleeing crooks and flinging them through the air like frisbees. Cobra herds Lois, the king, and the princess through a secret panel at gunpoint. But before Superman can leap through his well, it slams shut in his face. Clearly, this is no obstacle for the Man of Steel, and Superman smashes through the door like so much tinfoil, and chases after Cobra, who is forcing the hostages down a long hall. As Superman nears, Cobra forces them into a metal-lined room, and Superman enters the room... Cobra warns him to steer clear, threatening to flip a switch that will electrify the whole room, killing everyone. Cobra's hand slowly starts to lower the switch, but Superman leaps forward, grabbing the switch and ripping it from the wall. He then goes after Cobra himself, but Cobra recoils in cowardice, backing into a live wire protruding from the machine, which sends a fatal jolt of electricity coursing through his body. King Baru congratulates Superman for saving his royal hide once more, and both the princess and Lois fawn over the wonderful, wonderful Superman. Tanya starts to kiss Superman as a reward for his heroics, but is interrupted by the police arriving on scene. The police captain is thrilled, thinking he's captured the ever-elusive Superman. Superman congratulates him and says he hates to disappoint, but that capturing and holding are two different things, before leaping out of sight, leaving the captain irate and Lois and Tanya swooning. After Baru, Tanya, and Lois clear things up with the police, Lois heads back to the paper to write up the article, thinking a story on Clark Kent turning traitor and working with kidnappers and murderers will sure get her off a sob-sister column and into a real reporting gig. But as she reveals the scoop to her editor, in walks none other than Clark himself. Lois tears into him, calling him a scoundrel, a traitor, pretty much acting like classic Lois, but at least here she's got reason even if she's wrong. Clark stops her and hands her an extra edition of the star, with Clark's story on the Rangorian plotters, and the editor explains he only pretended to work with terrorists in order to get the story. And in yet another first for Superman stories, Lois realizes her mistake and apologizes very graciously to Clark for her mistake. Several days later, King Baru and Tanya make preparations to depart for Rangoria, and while Tanya and Lois trade fashion tips, Boru extends an open invitation for Clark and Lois to visit the country anytime. Tanya laments one last time her wish to see Superman again, and as the royal yacht sails off into the sunset, Lois and Clark discuss how, even though they were royalty, Baru and Tanya sure were swell. Phew! What a story. We're going to see longer and better stories in the future, But as Jerry Siegel's longest published story to date, not just for Superman, but for any character, this was really good. We've had several stories before that felt a little padded, and I've talked about this in previous episodes, but, you know, they just had scenes that were kind of random or uh, stuff that just really didn't need to be there. But this one, despite being nearly three times longer than any story so far it didn't feel like that at all one thing that might have been nice to see is that it might have been nice to tell the story from lois's perspective this would have really enhanced the part about clark kent turning traitor you know it would have put the reader in the same spot as lois has clark really turned traitor at this point while superman is certainly a hero and a good guy He hasn't gained that mystique of being an unwavering force upholding goodness and righteousness, that he will. And at this point, I think it would have been very easy to get the readers to buy into the idea that Clark and ultimately Superman were taking a darker turn. But that kind of storytelling really wasn't done in the Golden Age, so I can't fault Siegel for not going that route. Plus, it likely would have meant a reduced role for Superman himself in the story, so again not something I'm going to count as a black mark on the story. And you know, Superman, Clark, and Lois, really the only recurring characters at this point, since they haven't done much with the editor, all had their moments and played a significant part in the story, and each one's role worked together to make the story. You know, taking any one of them out, you just wouldn't have had the same story. And speaking of Lois, notice the difference in her portrayal in this story. I mean, she's inviting Clark over for dinner, and actually seems like she wants him to be there. Yeah, she tears into him later, but at least she's justified here after Clark runs out on her twice, once during the dinner and later at the reception. Though to be fair, Lois invited herself along the second time, and made it very clear that it was strictly a business-only affair. But still later, she thinks he's a traitor, so... Siegel definitely gave Lois lots of reasons to hate Clark here. Plus, she gives a very gracious apology for her mistake about the traitor thing. And at the end of the story, things are seemingly all good again. It's just very, very different from the Lois we've seen in earlier stories, whose disdain for Clark was, for the most part, completely unfounded and without remorse. And this is a Lois portrayal that's more to my liking. You know, if you're going to have Lois hate Clark, Give her a reason to hate him that Clark can't do anything about, so that I can still believe that Clark would be interested in her. It'll be interesting to see how much of this new Lois sticks around, since a lot of her vinegar in the story might have been taken by the princess, who exhibited a lot of the iconic Lois Lane qualities. You know, falling head over heels with Superman, using Clark to get at Superman and then being all mad, but still secretly in love with him when Superman rejects her. Speaking of, though, Tanya notices the resemblance that Clark bears to Superman, enough so that Clark is worried that she might put two and two together, and this is the first time that someone has done that. And it's even one of the first times, if not the first time, that a character has alluded to the fact that Superman might have a secret identity. And with Clark's worry that Tanya might figure it all out, it's just really great seeing more and more of these pieces of the uh, the quote-unquote classic Superman start falling into place. I was amused, though, a bit later in the story when Tanya comes on to him in her bedroom and Superman rejects her, saying that he has no time for romance. And I wonder if he would have said the same thing if Tanya had come on to Clark. Because Superman has said similar to Lois before, but clearly has no problems pursuing her while, you know, in the guise of Clark. I really liked near the beginning of the story, uh, Superman gets smacked by the torpedo, and there's a huge explosion. And then you don't see Superman again for a strip and a half, almost two strips. It really heightens the drama, and this is the second time that we've seen Superman taken out by a big explosion. Part of me really wants that to go away sooner than it does, but I accept it. And we have seen Superman using his other abilities, and more consistently in recent stories. We had a couple good instances of x-ray vision and super-hearing in this story, plus there was that boost in super-hearing that I mentioned earlier. On a related note, we see Clark using the camera to take out the assassin, and suggesting that they use Lois as bait. So that's a couple good instances of Superman or Clark using Brain rather than brawn to defeat villains, which is something else that I really like seeing. And Cobra, despite my complaints that they brought up the idea that he had a connection to the king and then never explained it, he made for a decent villain. The hypnotism mirrors were really goofy, but they gave us that great scene of Superman overcoming them by just his sheer force of will, And I still like that they're introducing more villains that have more supervillain qualities rather than just being, you know, corrupt businessmen or thugs. Although, this is the second Golden Age story I've read in the last month where the villain was killed off at the end of the story by him grabbing a live electrical wire. The other was from the Batman story in New York World's Fair Comics, which Michael and I looked at over on Legends. And... Although this story came first, publishing-wise, I read that one first for the podcasts, so I was kind of disappointed to see that fade again, since it's really kind of ridiculous. The art in this story, the Grand Comics Database, has an entry crediting the first 17 strips to Joe Shuster and Dennis Neville, and the, the rest to Joe Shuster and Paul Cassidy. For the purposes of this, I'm going to assume that's right. To my eye, it looks to be right-ish, though I swear I sense another artist or two at work, especially towards the middle of the story. But the beginning of the story, which they're crediting to Neville, is great stuff. Superman, Clark, and Lois all look great. The fight scene and the explosion from the torpedoes are nice. And even once Cassidy takes over, the art is okay right at first. But then after the first week or so, it goes downhill, And it's a bit hit or miss, you know, for most of the rest of the story. There's a lot of hit, but there's also a significant amount of miss, too, especially where it comes to Superman himself. Uh, There's just not the definition that we're used to seeing in a lot of panels, which causes Superman to look a bit like the Stay puffed Marshmallow Man. So I don't know if Neville was behind and Cassidy had to rush through to catch up, or, you know, exactly what was going on. On the whole, the art is still nice, but just kind of just kind of pretty much average of what we've come to expect from the Superman stories. But overall, I enjoyed the story a lot. It's just another strong effort from the Daily Strips, and I really, really enjoyed having the longer story, and I'm even happier that Siegel is taking advantage of the fact that he's not limited to the, the predetermined length like he is in the comic books. This storyline has only been reprinted in the first volume of dailies from Kitchen Sink. From here on out, the stories weren't picked up and reused in the comics, so they can't be found in the archives or chronicles. But like always, you can read it for free on dccomics.com, and I will link to that in the show notes.
3: Over 70 years of history in film, television, radio, and comics. Who are you? A friend. A hero sent to Earth from a doomed planet to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. A strange visitor from another planet? Superman.
1: This looks like a job for Superman.
3: Superman Forever Radio. A look at Superman's history in all mediums, from comics, to film, to merchandise, animation, and beyond. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Leader. Join me every Sunday and Thursday for a twice-weekly exodus into the world of Superman. Sundays we explore a wide range of topics throughout the mythology, from the heights of Metropolis to the fields of Smallville and to the depths of the galaxy of Krypton. Plus the latest news, gossip, and a look at Superman and other media. On Thursdays, we review the Superman comics following the Infinite Crisis in 2006, all the way up to the present, month-by-month, issue-by-issue. And don't forget the SFR Daily Planet, a minicast giving you the scoop on the Man of Steel as it happens. So visit supermanforever.com or iTunes and, of course, the Superman Podcast Network and begin the never-ending battle today. Superman Forever Radio. All Superman. All the time.
2: idea that Batman should look into this. And don't forget Robin! I am vengeance. I am the knight. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. I swear to God. Swear to
3: me! Ah! Don't kill me!
2: Don't kill me, man! I'm
3: not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Ah!
2: Legends of the Batman. Everything Batman from the beginning at BatmanLegends.com
0: Okay, that wraps up another episode. No spotlight segment this time due to the length of the story. I really wanted to be able to focus on it and I knew it would take a, a little bit longer than normal given its size. But do look for more spotlight segments down the road, because there are still lots of people left to focus on. Next week, I will hopefully be joined by yet another co-host, and we will be looking at three comics again, Action Comics No. 19, Superman number 3, and Action Comics No. 20, three books that wrap up the cover year of 1939. In the meantime, I want to thank you for joining me this episode. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, Please feel free to email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. You can also stop by the website at greatcrypton.com where you will find the email link, the RSS feed, and the iTunes link. As always, if you would like to leave an iTunes review, I would be very appreciative because I really do believe it helps people find the show. So thank you to those who take the time to do that. You can also find the show on Facebook. Just search for the show's name or click the link on the site to go directly to the show's Facebook page. The show is also now on Twitter if you use that. Just follow at Thrilling Adventures or click the link at GreatCrypton.com. The show is also proud to be a member of the Superman Podcast Network at SupermanPodcastNetwork.com, home to many excellent Superman-related podcasts that are worth your time. And last but not least, I invite you to check out my other podcast, Legends of the Batman, which I co-host with my pal Michael Kaiser. There we are covering everything Batman from the beginning, and you can find that at BatmanLegends.com As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye!
1: People will die. Billions.
0: Once again, the press underestimates me. This is front page news. Come on, let me hear you say it just once. Come on.
3: You're insane. No! (laughs) No, I want the other thing. Come on, I know it's just dangling off the tip of your tongue. Let me hear it just once, please.
2: Superman will never...